This morning we're in John chapter 11, so if you haven't turned, please do. John chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 38 through 46. Before I do, uh, look at that, a few questions. Why did, why did Jesus live? Why did he come? Did he come to meet felt needs of people? Did he, did he come to be a shiny example of personal spirituality? Did he come to, to teach the special insights in how we should live? Why did Jesus come? You know, at the time of Jesus' ministry, many different ideas were floating around. Many thought he had simply come to teach. After all, he was called rabbi. Jesus proclaimed God's law. He taught in the synagogues. He gathered disciples, debated with scribes, and even sat as he taught and explained the scriptures. So he fit the profile of a rabbi. And still others, they thought differently. They followed Jesus and were looking for the next miracle. They thought he, he primarily came to heal and to feed those in distress. And some others thought he came as a, a reincarnated Old Testament prophet. Still others thought he came, out, came to drive out demons. Jesus was called a king. He was called a glutton. He was called a drunkard. He was called a prophet and a criminal and a revolutionary and God. And he was called a blasphemer. Why did Jesus come? This morning, we're going to look at this passage and, and see one primary reason to come and show the glory of God. Before we do, join me in prayer. Father, we approach your throne this morning and we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to come and to worship together as the body of Christ here at Edgewood. And we thank you for this past week. We thank you that you are still on the throne. That you're still in control. Even in the midst of struggles that those come here this morning have faced, we recognize and understand that you care for us, that you love us, and that you've allowed certain things in our life for our betterment and for your glory. And Father, now as we look into your word in John chapter 11, help us realize afresh and anew that you care for us, that you come in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our suffering. You care for us and you teach us and you, you're working. Father, as we look into this chapter, we see, again, your power. Your power not only over death, but over unbelief. Help us to come away changed this morning. Help us to grow as we hear the preaching of your word. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to John chapter 11, verse 38, we see that as we follow the story, Jesus is now in Bethany, and he's with the sisters. He's had the, the discussions with each of them, and now he's asked to be brought to the tomb. You know, this is the main event. This is the main story of what's going to happen in all this. This is, this is where it gets lively, okay? Then Jesus, deeply moved again in verse 38, came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone lay against it, and Jesus said, take away the stone. Jesus already in verse 33, had displayed an outright anger at unbelief. And he's responding here in verse uh, 38 to what has happened in verses 36 and 37. In verse 36, the Jews said in response to Jesus weeping, it says, see how he loved him. But, but some of them, in verse 37, said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And Jesus responds in verse 38, if, 
He's disturbed. He's, he's literally disgusted at their lack of faith. You know, the crowd in the response in verse 37 bring up the healing of the blind man from John chapter 9. And, and this would have been the last miracle that they had witnessed in the area of Jerusalem. So this healing was very fresh on their minds. Those that were there and those that heard about it were bringing this up. And the crowd surrounded Jesus and the sisters and probably mocking a little bit of Jesus' power because they're obviously confused in who he was. They, they knew that Jesus had power to heal and that he was a special teacher, but they didn't understand that he was the son of God. And so as the crowd looks now at the situation, as they're surrounded this, this, this mass and these sisters and see the mourning, they begin to, to be confused. These, these sisters are pleading out. Jesus, if he'd only been here, he would have lived. And, and their natural question then is, why didn't Jesus just save him before he died? Why didn't he make more of an effort to get here on time? Well, they surely don't have the mind of God. And Jesus, now agitated at their lack of faith, asked for the stone to be rolled away. John MacArthur writes in his commentary, this was apparently a natural cave, though tombs were sometimes artificially carved out of the rock. In either case, the floor would have been leveled and shelves for the bodies cut into the walls. The tomb was located outside the village so that the living would not become ritually defiled by contact with dead bodies. It was also sealed by a large round stone which was rolled in front of the opening to keep grave robbers and animals out. And Jesus approaches the, 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 the cave now and he asked someone else to roll away the stone. I found that interesting this week as I studied. Why? Why does he ask someone else to roll the stone away? Is, he's able, right? He's God. He could speak that rock and it would be gone. And yet he asked someone. Jesus here is using someone for his purposes. He does it later in verse 44. We'll get to that where as, as Lazarus comes out, he asks someone else to unbind him. You know, Jesus is, is utilizing man for his honor and his glory. And he's about to show the world his glory. But can you imagine if you're that guy? You're standing at the tomb and you're about to see what happens, and, and all of a sudden, he's like, hey, you guys, you know, roll that stone away. You're standing there, innocent. You're not really sure what's going to happen. He's, you're now closer to the, to the tomb, closer to the, to the stench of death, now wafting up to your nose, probably trembling as, as a, a number of men roll this stone and lift it out of the way. You're the first person to, to really peek inside of the tomb. What is, what is Jesus going to do? You know, can you imagine the impression that would have left on those men as they stood there and did this? You know, as I said, Jesus was more than capable to remove the stone himself, but he chooses to use man. But still Martha has an issue. She's, Martha here, the sister of the dead man, it says, said to Jesus, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. There's a few things that I want to notice in Martha's statement to Jesus. She's, she's grieving here. And, and now the thought of seeing and, and smelling her brother's body in the state of decomposition, it horrified her. You know, at present for her, her brother is only a memory. She probably remembered all the times they spent together. You know, as kids outside playing or building forts or playing hide-and-seek, those, those memories flood her mind. 
And now Jesus is asking for the stone to be rolled away. You know, the very thought for her of seeing her brother dead again was, was too much for her. And it was displayed in her speech that she felt it was too late for her brother. Martha's personality, as we see in this, in this gospel and throughout, is, is, is she's a, a, a glass half empty kind of girl. She's a realist. And all hope was, was now gone. And that stone over the tomb reminded her that death is final. You know, tradition says that a family member had to give permission for the stone to be sealed and to be rolled away. So she, she here is trying to stop Jesus from opening up the tomb. You know, she believes, right? We, we've, we've covered that. Verse 26, she believes, but her, her belief is muddied with a lot of unbelief. She believed, but when it came down to putting her faith into action, she stumbles. Her response teaches myself and all of us this morning the raw truth that there lies unbelief in all of our hearts. John Calvin writes in his commentary, distracted in various ways, we fight with ourselves, and while we stretch out with one hand to ask assistance from God, we repel with the other hand that very assistance as soon as it's offered. Martha cannot believe there is any use to remove the stone. Her brother is dead. Jesus responds to her in verse 40 and said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Jesus is saying to her, get your eyes off the body and look at me. For us as humans, we need to see first before we believe. Too much of the time we're Thomas. And Jesus is reversing that. Believe and you will see. You know, this verse is the key verse to understand the entire chapter. In fact, I would say it's right in line with the understanding of the entire Gospel of John. Jesus is wanting more than to raise Lazarus. He's about to show the glory of God. What is the glory of God? Have you asked that question? The glory of God is, is the showing of all his attributes. When Moses wanted to see God's glory in Exodus 33, God revealed his goodness and his grace and his mercy and patience and truth. And his glory is the blending of all his attributes. And most notably, which we'll see here this morning, is his power to bring life. When Jesus came to earth, he was the glory of God embodied. Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the exact imprint of his nature. And John 1.14 says he was the manifestation of God's glory. And when we read the Gospels, we read about the attributes of Christ, which reveal the attributes of his Father in heaven. You see God's glory in mercy and grace and goodness and love and judgment and justice that Christ demonstrated while he lived on earth. And we come now to John 11, and he reveals one particular manifestation of glory and it's his ability to give life. Did you realize that the resurrection of life was one of the attributes of God's glory? Romans 6, 4 says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And the glory of the Father that raised Jesus Christ from the dead was showing his resurrection power. 
And so we read in John 11, this, this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead is also showing of God's glory and resurrection power. And this, this is what Jesus wanted Martha to be preoccupied with. His glory, not, not with her brother who's dead. And she needed to, to be focused on Christ and his glory. Jesus wanted her to see him glorified more than seeing her brother resurrected. And this, this miracle that's about to happen was evidence of his deity and his glory. But if we're honest with ourselves, some of us here are Marthas. Going through your life and only seeing problems. And we, and we worry and we fret to find the answers, the solutions to our problems. And when God gives the answer, the solution, all you see is the solution. And you rejoice in that. And you miss the glory of God. Until the next problem comes, and you again look for the solution. Now, I'm not advocating this morning that we just forget our problems. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that your, your, your problems, no matter how big or how huge or how life-dominating they are, they're never bigger than God. And God wants you to look past the solution and see his glory. Every time the Lord brings answers to our problems and our situations in life, we as believers need to praise him for who he is and what he has done. And so we've seen the, the preparation that, of Jesus' coming to Lazarus. The second point is his prayer in verses 41 through 43. So they take away the stone. They're, they're around the, 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 the tomb you know, everything's exposed. So, so picture the scene with me now. The, the, the people at this point, the crowd, I'm sure is pressed forward. The stone is gone. They're, they're trying to see what's going to happen. Everyone is curious of what Jesus is going to do. You know, the smell of death at this point is rising out of the grave. You know, Mary is probably un, un, unable to stand. She's probably bent over in the ground weeping. And Martha, she's standing in unbelief as to what Jesus is truly going to do. The crowd at this point is dumbfounded. Why is he doing this? And I'm sure everything quieted down. Raise your hand if you've ever been to a funeral. Just making sure you're awake. What's the atmosphere at a funeral? You know, sometimes it's, if it's a believer, it's a joyous occasion, but there's always a time where it's just quiet. The first funeral I ever went to outside of the country was in Germany when I took a trip uh, in college to visit a missionary. And while we were at a conference, the pa he was the missionary, but also the pastor got a call. Someone in his congregation, their mom had died. So what to do? He, he needed to go back to this funeral. He actually was preaching it for an unbeliever. The entire family was unbelievers except for one. And I go with him, and, and I'm in this funeral in this um, the cemetery in the building that was there, and I'm surrounded by people that are all wearing complete black. I have a white shirt on with a floral tie, so I stuck out. And I have no idea what's being said. It's all in German. And at one point in the, in the service, a boy off to the left, and I didn't know this, fainted. And it's a marble floor, and he just... It came at the perfect time, the missionary said, because everyone, and you jump, everyone saw him. And it startled everyone, and the family didn't know what to do, so they just picked him up and took him out. 
And for the missionary, that it was an opportunity at that point where he was getting to the gospel. It startled everyone. Because everyone at that moment in that funeral is, is focused on one thing and it, and it jolted them. And can you imagine that as we stand, as the people are standing around Jesus and around the tomb, they're not sure what's gonna happen. They're about to get jolted even more when Jesus cries out. But here he begins and he prays, he lifts up his eyes and says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this in account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. It's been said as you, as you read and study the book of John that this is a book about belief. You know, I read the passage earlier in John chapter 20, verse 31, it says, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the thesis statement of the book of John. This is the point that John is driving home in 21 chapters, belief. What we believe drives our hearts and our minds. And belief is a strange thing, isn't it? Jesus prays that, that those surrounding the tomb may believe that, they, that he sent him. Well, what is belief? It cannot mean just a simple acknowledgement of facts because the devil and his demons believe in God. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believed and shuddered. The devil and his demons are, are orthodox in their belief that Jesus is the son of God. And when Jesus talks about belief, then it cannot just mean an acknowledgement of certain facts because if, it's, if, all it's, if, if all of it is is just acknowledgement of it, then we're the same as Satan and the demons. So it has to mean more. And what's missing is not believing in the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, but delighting in that same fact. Embracing that fact. Making Christ your treasure and your Lord of your entire life and surrendering to him. And so, in other words, belief is seeing Jesus Christ for who he really is. And seeing him as infinitely valuable as the Son of God. It's not just facts and acknowledging facts. It's a submission to him. It's living as though Jesus is precious and he's valuable to your life. Satan doesn't do that. He hates Christ because Christ is a threat to his own value. But as believers, we treasure Christ because that is where we find our true value and our worth. It's nothing that we have done. It's all what Christ has done for us. So we begin to recognize that our value is nothing compared to Jesus' value. Instead, we just want to know him. We want to be with him. We want to enjoy him. We want to follow him and submit to him and celebrate him. And that change of heart so that we are, are now looking away from ourselves and now we're looking to Christ and embracing all that God is for us and all that he is in our faith. That's what belief is. That's what saves. This is what Jesus is doing here for the crowd surrounding the tomb. It's, it's, it's not meant to be a laser light show of pyrotechnics to get their attention. It's to display the glory of God through Jesus. I find it interesting also that Jesus is praying. He says, very boldly, 
I'm praying on account of the people standing around. How many of you realize that that God places you in situations and circumstances to be a witness through prayer? Parents that are here this morning, when you pray, you have little ears and little eyes, sometimes bigger as they grow, and they witness your prayers. They hear it. They hear you pray. They mimic how you pray. They're listening. So pray boldly. Pray with faith. Pray scripture. Grandparents, when you pray with your grandkids, even the ones that, who are away from any semblance of gospel truth, their parents have, have neglected God, they don't want anything to do with God, and even the kids, if you have chance to be around them, remember, God has placed you there to be a beacon of gospel truth to them. So maybe you don't get a chance to share the gospel in depth, but if you get a chance to pray, pray the gospel. Look for those opportunities, because they hear employees and students, and you're thinking, I don't get to pray in my job. You never know what God allows in your life. But don't be misguided. God, God brings certain situations in your life, and through public prayer, people will see Jesus. Be bold. Don't take it for granted. You know, in the story, if Jesus wanted to la- raise Lazarus from the dead, he could have just got it done any way, an easier way maybe from our vantage point. But he goes to great lengths to get people surrounding around this tomb. He could have just done it. He could have walked into Bethany, come to Mary's house, had a celebration, and have Lazarus just kind of waltz in. Why doesn't he? Because Jesus has bigger plans than just bringing back his friend from the dead. Jesus has the interest of people in mind. The disciples and Mary and Martha and the crowd surrounding the tomb, they're waiting to see what will happen. And before any of it unfolds, Jesus prays to the Father. And it's a, it's a beautiful prayer. It's, it's simple and sincere. And he prays as the one that God had sent. He prays as the, the mediator between God and man. He prays as the true Son of God. And Jesus prays as if the miracle had already happened. He prays with confidence that shows his power and control over the situation. Why does he pray that that, that they might believe that God had sent him? Well, because to the Jew, they denied this fact. And there are Jews today that still deny this. To them, Jesus is, is just a good teacher. He isn't God. He was just a prophet, nothing more. So Jesus' prayer echoes even today for all that think that Jesus was just a nice guy that Jesus just came to preach or teach, that Jesus has no significance. They're wrong. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus' great claim throughout his entire ministry was that he had been sent from God on a mission to redeem mankind. He, as God in human flesh, he was publicly declaring that he and God were one. He's laying down the gauntlet. He's praying, Father, it's wonderful to know that you and I have already agreed in this situation with Lazarus and that you always hear me because I always ask according to your will. Jesus didn't have to ask the Father what he wanted because he already knew. He too was God. He's distinct yet one. And his desires line up perfectly with God's desires. 
Could any other man in all of history say that to God? Absolutely not. It would be complete display of egotism because man and God do not agree on everything. If Christ was not God in the flesh, then a statement of this magnitude would have been blasphemous. So Jesus prays out loud because he wants people who are there to know that he and God the Father are intimately connected. And Jesus had fully prepared everyone there for a display of power. Everyone was standing around in anxious anticipation of the tomb being opened. The world is about to receive a taste of God's matchless power and grace. And this is a critical moment in Jesus' ministry. If Lazarus does not come out, Jesus' credibility is gone. If Jesus isn't powerful enough to raise Lazarus, would he be powerful enough to conquer death? You know, this, this event here in this chapter would forever mark him as entirely unique to anyone who have ever seen anything of his ministry. Did Jesus have the power to get Lazarus out of the tomb by reversing death? Did he have the power to recreate fresh skin and new organs? Did he have the power to bring oxygen into lungs that had ceased from working? And when he had finished this prayer, he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. He cries out with a loud voice. Why? Why does he, why does he do this? Why does he shout? You know, the Greek word megos means great, big, and significant in magnitude. He shouts for Lazarus to come out. Why? Well, the text doesn't give us any reasons, but here's three, not outside of Scripture. Commentaries, this is the first one they, they've said. The first is to keep in line with the character of death as deep sleep. It may have been necessary to shout release from, to shout to release him from it. I don't, I don't agree. Number two, a loud shout was appropriate with all the power that would be necessary to resurrect Lazarus. I don't agree with that one. The third one, I believe it was loud to shock the people standing around and realizing that what was going to happen was happening because Jesus commanded it. That's why. Just like the story I'd mentioned I was at that funeral, when you're surrounding those situations, people are focused on one thing. And what Jesus wants them to see is not so much Lazarus, but his power. And Jesus shouting for Lazarus to come out associated his power with resurrection. I found this interesting. Augustine once remarked that if Jesus had not said Lazarus' name, all of the dead people would have come out of the tomb. I don't know if it's true. But there's power. So Jesus has come and he's prayed and now we'll see the result of his power. Verses 44 through 46. Christ has power over death. John writes, the man who had died came out with his hands and his feet with linen strips and his faith wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, the crowd, unbind him and let him go. The man who four days earlier, finished his life on earth, and his flesh is now rotting and decaying and going back to the dust from which it came, comes walking out of the tomb. And it must have completely rocked this crowd. They're looking to see what's going to happen. And out walks Lazarus, wrapped in grave clothes, and at the sound of, of Christ's voice, death had to yield up its lawful captive. 
And Christ stands as the conqueror of sin and Satan and death. The sisters must have stood in utter amazement with their hearts, hearts just pounding, thumping out of their chest. And the brother whom they loved was now walking towards them. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead as absolute proof that he has power over death. Power. How do you define power? What comes to mind when we say we have power over something? You know, when I'm wrestling with my kids, I have power over them to either win or let them win. Our power on earth pales in comparison to the power of God. And what we see here is the divine resurrection power of an almighty God. It is this power that is beyond the ability of our finite minds to fully comprehend, let alone accomplish on our own. What we see here is the, the power that stops the processes of death decay. The kind of power that reverses the rigor mortis. The kind of power that pours new life into rotted organs and starts a bloodless heart beating and then pumping fresh blood into every organ and every limb. It is this kind of power that creates a whole new body. The kind of power that creates blood out of nothing and then makes it flow fast throughout the veins. It is the power that takes sightless decomposed eyes and gives them new tissue and new nerves so that they can see again. It is the power that takes a non-functioning massive brain tissue and gives it new power to think and feel and move and speak. And we see the resurrection power through Lazarus. Jesus has the power to use words to bring back life. And this power only belongs to God. God alone brings life. And now life has been given back to Lazarus. John writes, The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. MacArthur writes, it says, In keeping with Jewish burial customs, Lazarus' body was loosely wrapped in strips of cloth, which allowed him to walk awkwardly on his own. I'm sure it was awkward. Lazarus come walking out. Can you imagine the shock and bewilderment of the crowd? They're not sure what he's going to do. They're standing around the tomb, curious. I'm sure most thought he was going to do nothing. And now they, they see. What do they see? Jesus promised them that they would see the glory of God. You know, he doesn't allow any time to pass as Lazarus walks out, but he commands the, the crowd, the onlookers, to unbind him and let him go. Death has no, no hold over him anymore. He's free. And, and Jesus commands others to free Lazarus because just like he involves other men to move the stone from the entrance of the tomb, he wants men and women to see and to touch and to hear with their own senses that Lazarus is alive. He wanted them to see that it was not a ghost. It was not a magic show. 
This was their friend. This was the sister's brother who, who's now alive. And then John, curious enough, he draws a close to the scene at the tomb. I found it curious as I came to the end of this that he just stops. He doesn't describe Lazarus' reunion with his sisters. He, he, he doesn't talk about the stunned reaction of the crowd even. He, he doesn't explain what the meal was that Lazarus had after being dead for four days. He doesn't talk about any of that. And the question is, why? Well, I believe John does this because he doesn't want the reader to be distracted from the main point. And the main point is not Lazarus. Right? And I found it interesting in this last section of this passage, they knew in reference to my name, they just say that the man that was dead. Because he's not the main point. Remember what Jesus said in verse four, he says, this illness does not lead to, to death or forever death. It's for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. It's about glory. It's about God's glory. That was the focus. That was the reason. We do see the reaction of those that were there though in verse 45. Many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary had seen what he did and believed in him. They had come to the tomb to mourn with Mary, and instead of mourning, they're saved. As Jesus gives new life to Lazarus, they receive new life, and they believe in Jesus. At 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And in this we read the amazing wickedness of human nature. There's no greater mistake for the church if we get into a thinking that we need to have miracles. We need to have the pizzazz. And if we have that, people will be saved. You know what the response is? Verse 46. They had the greatest miracle right in front of them. And they walk away. We may think that the flash and the unbelievable will convert people, but this verse shatters that misconception. Instead of being softened and convinced of who Jesus is, they're hardened and enraged, and they continue to walk in their unbelief. Didn't Jesus promise Martha that she would see the glory of God? He did, and she did. The thing that I'm reminded in this whole chapter, the first thing that they needed to go through was suffering. And if you've ever lost a loved one, it's, it's suffering. We don't like the idea of suffering. Just the word suffering causes our hearts to shudder with fear and anxiety. Suffering usually means pain and disillusionment. But as the scriptures teach us, suffering is necessary for the Christian. And we need to remind ourselves on a weekly or even daily basis that suffering and trials and tribulations and hardships and pain are not the final answer. They are tools in which the, in the hands of our Father who is wise and compassionate and sovereign and skillful to use to make us into the image of his Son. They are used to produce in us steadfastness and endurance and character and hope and holiness and righteousness and glory and honor. And in John 11, we, we, we see that suffering comes to the life of those that seek to follow Christ. 
And I'm always struck with the significance of verse five. I highlighted this a number of weeks ago. You know, if we don't have verse five, then verse six means something completely different. When we come to verse six and it says, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. But verse five is our buffer to cause delay in our hearts from jumping to a conclusion that's inaccurate about Jesus. Because verse five says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. One commentator said, the highest motivation for love is not our feelings or affections, but rather an honest, intelligent facing of the question, what is best for the one I love? This is how God loves. Jesus loves his family, and because he loves them, he waits two days longer. Jesus delays and Lazarus dies. His delay doesn't disprove his love. Instead, it it demonstrates the greater depths of his love. As the story continues, we see ever more clearly the deepness of Christ's love for his children, seeking to not fulfill their temporary needs, but their greatest need of all, faith, belief. And in verse 15, as he's teaching disciples, he says to them, I was glad I was not there so that you may believe. Christ delighted in a delay that would allow the death of Lazarus and brought about grief for the sisters. He did this because he loved the one who died and those that needed to weep. Very simply, our world does not understand this type of love. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't understand it either. Jesus loved Martha. He loved Mary. He loved the disciples and Lazarus. And he loved them so much that he delays allowing Lazarus to die. And then he rejoices in the fact that he was not there to stop it. As the text says, Jesus wanted Lazarus to die and for the sisters to experience suffering in in a very real way. But it wasn't without purpose. Why would Jesus want Lazarus to die? Is Is he cruel? Jesus does not take any pleasure in the suffering of his children. Even though this was not pleasing, what it accomplished in the lives of the people gathered there in front of the tomb was profoundly pleasing to God. He loved the sisters and Lazarus and desired their good, and he valued something more than they not experiencing suffering. And what did he value? He valued their faith and he valued the glory of God. Christ delayed to give more faith to his children. He delayed for the sake of his own and for the glory of God. And faith sees and embraces the glory of God and expresses this glory. And God is glorified when we trust in him. And he wants us to suffer so that we might learn to trust in him and to seek him as our refuge and hope. And this we're satisfied and he's glorified. And we find our contentment in him alone, especially in suffering. God becomes a greater treasure to us. We just spent a whole hour in our Sunday school class upstairs talking about, in the the context of discipleship, the purpose of suffering. We get in our minds as Christians that we shouldn't suffer. In fact, the false teachers in our culture are preaching against it, that as Christians, you, you can't suffer, you shouldn't suffer. In fact, you should be rich and healthy. But that's contrary to God's word. You know, we should, we should put on the sign 
Edgewood Bible Church, come suffer with us. We should expect suffering. And we talked about it in the class because you don't plan for suffering. Right? Did, did Mary and Martha know that their brother would die? Did they have the plan years in advance? Or did it just happen? You know, as Christians, as we read this chapter, we need to realize we need to prepare ourselves for suffering because it's going to happen. And how are we going to respond in that? These are real struggles of the Christian life. And I want to give you hope because we, we serve a God and we know Jesus and Jesus suffered. Did he not? On the day of his death, Jesus was beaten. And he was taunted by the mockers and they would cry out. He, he saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ, if he's the chosen God. And Jesus knew that his hour of death had come. And he recognized that at any moment, with any one word, he could speak and legions of angels would come and rescue him. But his duty was to die. And he drank the cup. And with his final words, he entrusted himself to the Father. And for three days, the Son of God was dead. For three days, the father was silent. For three days, those who mocked Jesus felt triumph in their hostility toward him. And for three days, his disciples and his friends mourned their loss. For three days, they hid in fear and bewilderment. And then the Lord God, omnipotent, broke the silence. He didn't scream. There was no trumpet heralding. There was women who went to the tomb and found out that he has risen. He had conquered death. We suffer and we go through suffering with a God who suffered for us. Today, just like the crowd that surrounded the tomb, you can trust God for salvation. For those that are here today that do not know Christ, today can be the day when new life begins. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word that teaches us, that guides us and leads us. Father, I thank you that you allow trials into our life. That you bring suffering. Because we know through that, and from what your word says, that through that suffering you bring growth and sanctification to our life. That we become more like Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those that are here this morning that are suffering that are grieving, 
that are struggling in trials. I pray that they run to you as their refuge and their strength and their hope. Father, help us as the church family to recognize this, to minister to one to another. Father, help us not to be so set in our ways that we just come into church, that we just come sing, listen to the preaching, and then go home and are disconnected from this family. Father, give us guidance and leading to know how we can be connected to others here, recognizing that real life happens outside of this church also. Father, I pray for those here this morning that do not know you, that are living in unbelief. I pray that you would soften their hearts to understand the gospel, that you would give faith, that they would be able to trust you for salvation. Help us, Father, as we leave this place to be ambassadors for you and wherever you have us serving, at home, at school, at work, in our neighborhood. Father, may we glorify you. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to our only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.